0: Section 11 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz, Chapter 4, Part 4. On the Origin of the Planetary System let us select from among them the two which for the smallest mass produce the greatest amount of heat when they combine let us assume that the sun consists of hydrogen and oxygen mixed in the proportion in which they would unite to form water the mass of the sun is known and also the quantity of heat produced by the union of known weights of oxygen and hydrogen calculation shows that under the above supposition the heat resulting from their combustion would be sufficient to keep up the radiation of heat from the sun for 3,021 years. That, it is true, is a long time, but even profane history teaches that the sun has lighted and warmed us for 3,000 years, and geology puts it beyond doubt that this period must be extended to millions of years. Known chemical forces are thus so completely inadequate, even on the most favorable assumption, to explain the production of heat which takes place in the sun, that we must quite drop this hypothesis. We must seek for forces of far greater magnitude, and these we can only find in cosmical attraction. We have already seen that the comparatively small masses of shooting stars and meteorites can produce extraordinarily large amounts of heat when their cosmical velocities are arrested by our atmosphere. Now the force which has produced these great velocities is gravitation. We know of this force as one acting on the surface of our planet when it appears as terrestrial gravity. We know that a weight raised from the earth can drive our clocks, and that in like manner the gravity of the water rushing down from the mountains works our mills. If a weight falls from a height and strikes the ground, its mass loses, indeed, the visible motion which it had as a whole. In fact, however, this motion is not lost. It is transferred to the smallest elementary particles of the mass, and this invisible vibration of the molecules is the motion of heat. Visible motion is transformed by impact into the motion of heat. That which holds in this respect for gravity holds also for gravitation. A heavy mass, of whatever kind, which is suspended in space, separated from another heavy mass, represents a force capable of work for both masses attract each other, and, if unrestrained by centrifugal force, they move towards each other under the influence of this attraction. This takes place with ever-increasing velocity, and if this velocity is finally destroyed, whether this be suddenly, by collision, or gradually, by the friction of movable parts, it develops the corresponding quantity of the motion of heat, the amount of which can be calculated from the equivalence previously established, between heat and mechanical work now we may assume with great probability that very many more meteors fall upon the sun than upon the earth and with greater velocity too and therefore give more heat yet the hypothesis that the entire amount of the sun's heat which is continually lost by radiation is made up by the fall of meteors a hypothesis which was propounded by meyer and has been favorably adopted by several other physicists is open, according to Sir W. Thompson's investigations, to objection, for, assuming it to hold, the mass of the sun should increase so rapidly that the consequences would have shown themselves in the accelerated motion of the planets. The entire loss of heat from the sun cannot at all events be produced in this way, at the most a portion which, however, may not be inconsiderable. If now there is no present manifestation of force sufficient to cover the expenditure of the sun's heat, the sun must originally have had a store of heat, which it gradually gives out. But whence this store? We know that the cosmical forces alone could have produced it, and here the hypothesis, previously discussed as to the origin of the sun, comes to our aid. If the mass of the sun had been once diffused in cosmical space, and had then been condensed, that is had fallen together under the influence of celestial gravity if then the resultant motion had been destroyed by friction and impact with the production of heat the new world produced by such condensation must have acquired a store of heat not only of considerable but even of colossal magnitude calculation shows that assuming the thermal capacity of the sun to be the same as that of water The temperature might be raised to 28 million of degrees if this quantity of heat could ever have been present in the sun at one time. This cannot be assumed, for such an increase of temperature would offer the greatest hindrance to condensation. It is probable, rather, that a great part of this heat, which was produced by condensation, began to radiate into space before this condensation was complete. But the heat which the sun could have previously developed by its condensation would have been sufficient to cover its present expenditure for not less than twenty-two million of years of the past. And the sun is by no means so dense as it may become. Spectrum analysis demonstrates the presence of large masses of iron and of other known constituents of the rocks. The pressure which endeavors to condense the interior is about eight hundred times as great as that in the center of the earth and yet the density of the sun, owing probably to its enormous temperature, is less than a quarter of the mean density of the earth. We may therefore assume with great probability that the sun will still continue in its condensation, even if it only attained the density of the earth, though it will probably become far denser in the interior owing to the enormous pressure. This would develop fresh quantities of heat, which would be sufficient to maintain for an additional 17 million of years the same intensity of sunshine as that which is now the source of all terrestrial life. The smaller bodies of our system might become less hot than the sun, because the attraction of the fresh masses would be feebler. A body like the earth might, if even we put its thermal capacity as high as that of water, become heated to even 9,000 degrees, to more than our flames can produce the smaller bodies must cool more rapidly as long as they are still liquid the increase in temperature with the depth is shown in boreholes and in mines the existence of hot wells and of volcanic eruptions shows that in the interior of the earth there is a very high temperature which can scarcely be anything than a remnant of the high temperature which prevailed at the time of its production At any rate, the attempts to discover for the internal heat of the Earth a more recent origin in chemical processes have hitherto rested on very arbitrary assumptions, and, compared with the general uniform distribution of the internal heat, are somewhat insufficient. On the other hand, considering the huge masses of Jupiter, of Saturn, of Uranus, and of Neptune, their small density, as well as that of the Sun, is surprising, while the smaller planets and the Moon approximate to the density of the Earth. We are here reminded of the higher initial temperature and the slower cooling, which characterizes larger masses. The Moon, on the contrary, exhibits formations on its surface which are strikingly suggestive of volcanic craters and point to the former state of ignition of our satellite. The mode of its rotation, moreover, that it always turns the same side towards the Earth, Is a peculiarity which might have been produced by the friction of a fluid. At present, no trace of such a one can be perceived. You see thus by what various paths we are constantly led to the same primitive conditions. The hypothesis of Kant and Laplace is seen to be one of the happiest ideas in science, which at first astounds us, and then connects us in all directions with other discoveries, by which the conclusions are confirmed until we have confidence in them in this case another circumstance has contributed that is the observation that this process of transformation which the theory in question presupposes goes on still though on a smaller scale seeing that all the stages of that process can still be found to exist for as we have already seen the larger bodies which are already formed go on increasing with the development of heat by the attraction of the meteoric masses already diffused in space Even now the smaller bodies are slowly drawn towards the sun by the resistance in space. We still find in the firmament of fixed stars, according to Sir J. Herschel's newest catalogue, over five thousand nebulous spots, of which those whose light is sufficiently strong give for the most part a colored spectrum of fine bright lines as they appear in the spectra of the ignited gases. The nebulae are partly rounded structures, which are called planetary nebulae. Sometimes wholly irregular in form, as the large nebula in Orion, they are partly annular, as we see, for example, in the Canis Venatici. They are, for the most part, feebly luminous over their whole surface, while the fixed stars only appear as luminous points. In many nebulae, for example, as in Sagittarius and Aurigo, small stars can be seen. More stars are continually being discovered in them, the better are the telescopes used in their analysis thus before the discovery of spectrum analysis sir w herschel's former view might be regarded as the most probable that that which we see to be nebulae are only heaps of very fine stars of other milky ways now however spectrum analysis has shown a gas spectrum in many nebulae which contains stars while actual heaps of stars show the continuous spectrum of ignited solid bodies Nebulae have in general three distinctly recognizable lines, one of which, in the blue, belongs to hydrogen, a second in bluish-green to nitrogen, while the third, between the two, is of unknown origin. We see such a spectrum from a small but bright nebula in the dragon. Traces of other bright lines are seen along with them, and sometimes also traces of a continuous spectrum all of which, however, are too feeble to admit of accurate investigation. It must be observed here that the light of very feeble objects which give a continuous spectrum are distributed by the spectroscope over a large surface, and are therefore greatly enfeebled or even extinguished, while the undecomposable light of bright gas lines remains undecomposed and hence can still be seen. In any case, the decomposition of the light of the nebulae shows that by far the greater part of their luminous surface is due to ignited gases of which hydrogen forms a prominent constituent in the planetary masses the spherical or discoidal it might be supposed that the gaseous mass has attained a condition of equilibrium but most other nebulae exhibit highly irregular forms which by no means correspond to such a condition as, however, their shape is either not at all altered, or not appreciably, since they have been known and observed, they must either have very little mass, or they must be of colossal size and distance. The former does not appear very probable, because small masses very soon give out their heat, and hence we are left to the second alternative, that they are of huge dimensions and distances. The same conclusion had been originally drawn by Sir W. Herschel, on the assumption that the nebulae were heaps of stars with those nebulae which besides the lines of gases also show the continuous spectrum of ignited denser bodies are connected spots which are partly irresolvable and partly resolvable into heaps of stars which only show the light of the latter kind the countless luminous stars of the heavenly firmament whose number increases with each newer and more perfect telescope associate themselves with this primitive condition of the worlds as they are formed. They are like our sun in magnitude, in luminosity, and in the whole also in the chemical condition of their surface, although there may be differences in the quantity of individual elements. But we find also in space a third stadium, that of extinct suns, and for this also there are actual evidences. In the first place there are, in the course of history, pretty frequent examples of the appearance of new stars. In 1572 Tycho Bray observed such a one, which, though gradually burning paler, was visible for two years, stood still like a fixed star, and finally reverted to the darkness from which it had so suddenly emerged. The largest of them all seems to have been that observed by Kepler in the year 1604, which was brighter than a star of the first magnitude and was observed from September 27, 1604, until March 1606. The reason of its luminosity was probably the collision with a smaller world. In a more recent case, in which on May 12, 1866, a small star of the tenth magnitude in the corona suddenly burst out to one of the second magnitude, spectrum analysis showed that it was an outburst of ignited hydrogen which produced the light this was only luminous for twelve days in other cases obscure heavenly bodies have discovered themselves by their attraction on adjacent bright stars and the motions of the latter thereby produced such an influence is observed in sirius and procyon by means of a new refracting telescope messrs alvin clark and pond of cambridge u s have discovered in the case of sirius a scarcely visible star which has but little luminosity but is almost seven times as heavy as the sun has about half the mass of sirius and whose distance from sirius is about equal to that of neptune from the sun the satellite of procyon has not yet been seen it appears to be quite dark thus there are extinct suns the fact that there are such lends new weight to the reasons which permit us to conclude that our sun also is a body which slowly gives out its store of heat and thus will sometime become extinct. The term of seventeen million years, which I have given, may perhaps become considerably prolonged by the gradual abatement of radiation, by the new accretion of falling meteors, and by still greater condensation than that which I have assumed in that calculation. But we know of no natural process which could spare our sun the fate which has manifestly fallen upon other suns. This is a thought which we only reluctantly admit, It seems to us an insult to the beneficent creative power which we otherwise find at work, in organisms and especially in living ones. But we must reconcile ourselves to the thought that, however we may consider ourselves to be the center and final object of creation, we are but as dust on the earth, which again is but a speck of dust in the immensity of space, and the previous duration of our race, even if we follow it far beyond our written history, into the era of the lake dwellings or of the mammoth is but an instant compared with the primeval times of our planet when living beings existed upon it whose strange and unearthly remains still gaze at us from their ancient tombs and far more does the duration of our race sink into insignificance compared with the enormous periods during which worlds have been in process of formation and will still continue to form when our sun is extinguished and our earth is either solidified and cold or is united with the ignited central body of our system but who knows whether the first living inhabitants of the warm sea on the young world whom we ought perhaps to honour as our ancestors would not have regarded our present cooler condition with as much horror as we look on a world without a sun considering the wonderful adaptability to the conditions of life which all organisms possess Who knows to what degree of perfection our posterity will have been developed in seventeen million of years and whether our fossilized bones will not perhaps seem to them as monstrous as those of the ichthyosaurus now do and whether they adjusted for a more sensitive state of equilibrium will not consider the extremes of temperature within which we now exist to be just as violent and destructive as those of the older geological times appear to us Yea, even if sun and earth should solidify and become motionless, who could say what new worlds would not be ready to develop life? Meteoric stones sometimes contain hydrocarbons. The light of the heads of comets exhibits a spectrum which is most like that of the electrical light in gases containing hydrogen and carbon. But carbon is the element which is characteristic of organic compounds from which living bodies are built up. Who knows whether these bodies, which everywhere swarm through space, do not scatter germs of life wherever there is a new world which has become capable of giving a dwelling place to organic bodies, and this life we might perhaps consider as allied to ours in its primitive germ, however different might be the form which it would assume in adapting itself to its new dwelling place. However this may be, that which most arouses our moral feelings at the thought of a future, though possibly very remote cessation of all living creation on the earth is more particularly the question whether all this life is not an aimless sport which will ultimately fall a prey to destruction by brute force under the light of darwin's great thought we begin to see that not only pleasure and joy but also pain struggle and death are the powerful means by which nature has built up her finer and more perfect forms of life and we men know more particularly that in our intelligence our civic order and our morality we are living on the inheritance which our forefathers have gained for us and that which we acquire in the same way will in like manner ennoble the life of our posterity thus the individual who works for the ideal objects of humanity even if in a modest position and in a limited sphere of activity may bear without fear the thought that the thread of his own consciousness will one day break but even men of such free and large order of minds as lessing and david strauss could not reconcile themselves to the thought of a final destruction of the living race and with it of all the fruits of all past generations as yet we know of no fact which can be established by scientific observation which would show that the finer and complex forms of vital motion could exist otherwise than in the dense material of organic life, that it can propagate itself as the sound movement of a string can leave its originally narrow and fixed home and diffuse itself in the air, keeping all the time its pitch, and the most delicate shade of its color tint, and that, when it meets another string attuned to it, starts this again, or excites a flame ready to sing to the same tone. The flame even, which, of all processes, in inanimate nature, is the closest type of life, may become extinct, but the heat which it produces continues to exist, indestructible, imperishable as an invisible motion, now agitating the molecules of ponderable matter, and then radiating into boundless space as the vibration of an ether. Even there it retains the characteristic peculiarities of its origin, and it reveals its history to the inquirer who questions it by the spectroscope. United afresh, these rays may ignite a new flame, and thus, as it were, acquire a new bodily existence. Just as the flame remains the same in appearance, and continues to exist with the same form and structure, although it draws every minute fresh combustible vapor, and fresh oxygen from the air, into the vortex of its ascending current, and just as the wave goes on in unaltered form and as yet being reconstructed every moment from fresh particles of water, so also in the living being it is not the definite mass of substance which now constitutes the body, to which the continuance of the individual is attached. For the material of the body, like that of the flame, is subject to continuous and comparatively rapid change, a change the more rapid, the livelier the activity of the organs in question. Some constituents are renewed from day to day, some from month to month, and others only after years. That which continues to exist as a particular individual is like the flame and the wave, only the form of motion which continually attracts fresh matter into its vortex and expels the old. The observer with a deaf ear only recognizes the vibration of sound as long as it is visible and can be felt, bound up with heavy matter. Are our senses, in reference to life, Like the deaf ear in this respect? End of section 11. Read by Verla Vieira, Las Cruces, New Mexico, USA, October 11th, 2021.